Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. China is in the grip of what's being called a nationwide masculinity crisis. In September, government regulators banned what it called sissy men and other abnormal aesthetics. Ear studs, dyed hair, and tattoos are out. The education ministry is planning to cultivate masculinity in boys from kindergarten onwards. Last year, issuing a document called the proposal to prevent the feminization of male adolescents. So why is the Chinese government now policing masculinity? That's Feng Xiaoyi. He's a young man with porcelain white skin. He's wearing a hooded white coat, and he's eating peaches out of a jar. Very slowly, he had six hundred thousand followers on Douyin, but this video is the one that got him suspended. It was reported by social media users who called him a sissy, and then Douyin stopped his account for quote grandstanding through gaudy content. To discuss what lies behind the masculinity crisis, we're joined by three experts in the field. Can Louis, honorary professor at the University of Hong Kong and the University of New South Wales, and author of Chinese Masculinities in a Globalizing World, Guo Ting, researcher of gender and politics at the University of Toronto, and co-host of a Mandarin podcast Shicha, as well as Xiao Gang Wei, a filmmaker who is a board member of the Beijing LGBT Center, now based in Taiwan. Let's start with you. Is there any historical argument that can be made for this policy? I mean, historically speaking, Chinese masculinity isn't necessarily about being macho, is it?、Uh, no, in fact,、um, I would even say even now it's not really about being macho. Historically, also, there's always been problems with people think, you know, thinking that there was a masculinity crisis. For example, in, even in the early 20th century. You know, there was this huge campaign about making making Chinese men more more masculine, stronger physically, and so on. They were talking about masculinity crisis then, over a hundred years ago. This masculinity, the so-called masculinity crisis thing, just comes up every few years. It's nothing new. You're right. I mean, historically, it's it's, it's、um, people have been worried, but it's it's never been a major thing. I don't think Chinese as, as a whole、um, are, are really anti. Feminine men, or anti-gay, even or anything like that. I mean, most people just say, "Oh, let it be," you know.、Um, but just like every other society, you 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 have the occasional sort of、um, nosy bugger who wants to go and create a crisis. When when to me, it's not really a, a big crisis as such. And and just sticking with the historical lens, I mean, some of my favourite viewing. Now banned as well、uh, are boys love dramas, and in some of these dramas, the men are wearing you know beautiful lavish robes and have wonderfully done up hair. And is that historically accurate to a degree? I think so. Yeah,、um, you know, if you look at even paintings from, from, from the imperial days, 
men were dressed better than women. You know, they, they were like birds, the male species, uh, much, much more um, better dressed and better adorned than a female in many cases. So I think historically that's, that's definitely the case. It's not to say that um, historically Chinese men were not put on makeup and so on. Uh, it's just, just nonsense. So, so Xiaogang, I mean, the, I love the birds of paradise analogy. I think that's a beautiful one. And, and indeed, in nature, it's often the male who is the most flamboyant and the most beautifully dressed because you have to attract a mate, especially when there's 40 million more of you in the case of China. Um, but Xiaogang, I mean, we've seen the rise of a generation of what you might call metrosexual or, or hipster Chinese men influenced, I guess, to a degree by, by, China, by Korean culture. What you see from the outsider, uh, you know, sure, the dyed hair, the earrings, but also stunningly beautiful men. I mean, wh- why would a government be threatened by this? I think this is, uh, for me, this is a very complex uh, like topic. From the history, if you see, actually, this is repeating again and again. Like, uh, about 10 years ago, I went to this kind of like a uh, uh, Beijing TV, like a television uh, show is talking about like uh, being masculine. There's a lot of people are supporting, like, uh, we have to give education in the school to be masculine. But in that moment, I really think about, is this like something about like, you know, wrong with being CC. I think it's a, in the end, I think it's because like China is still very, how you call it, a patriarchal society. I think it's all about like, you know, who's dominating in this family. I think, of course, this is very complex to issues because if you really see why the CC goes to now, because also I think involved with the LGBT movement, feminist movement, I think all those movement roll up at this like, you know, as a the men become a women, like or like become like CC. I think for some people, they just cannot take anymore. I, for me, I don't think they don't like men being CC. I think for them, it's like a, they feel they're lo- losing their like a control on like you know what people should uh, look like or something. But if I could follow up on that, in in the LGBT space, do do you feel in some ways this is this is targeting your community to a degree? I think this time is really interesting because they start with like a like very focus on like celebrities, but in the same time, it's really interesting they're also targeting a lot on like a transgender group. It's like not directly on LGBT organization or thing, but uh, for example, there's a lot drag queens on like a on this kind of social media was their platform being taken down or like, you know, their videos being de- taken down. And also I think that a lot of celebrities was being told that you cannot, you know, acting this kind of like, you know, not male, not female role anymore. Everybody have to like butch up or something. So um, Guo Ting, you have written and thought a lot about gender. How much do you think this is kind of rolled up in a kind of patriarchal version of nationalism, which is being espoused by the Chinese government at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say earlier, Xiao Gang was spot on when he said it's about uh, losing control for the government. Uh, So I would use the term parental governance to refer to what's going on. So it's, of course, very, a very patriarchal form of governance. And but it also uses uh, the framework of Confucianism. If we so, I'm I'm thinking of this issue from two perspectives: uh, China's domestic policies and politics, but also China's international policies as well. So domestically, if we think about under the current regime, there's a emphasis on the return to traditional culture, in quote, and there's a lot of. Uh, explicit emphasis on Confucianism and see himself as mentioned several times on the occasion of Spring Festival uh, or 
May the twentieth, kind of the day for love, to emphasize that it's the we should return to the Confucian ideal of、uh, filial piety and loving household. That loving house, of course, of course, it's a very patriarchal form of household, and he himself、uh, becomes the head of the household and also the ideal man, the ideal fatherly figure, but also the ideal leader, the fatherly leader of the nation, and that's the framework that we are seeing in the particular form of nationalism today, and in order to promote that framework, the kind of image of very strong fatherly paternalistic. And a big patriarch is very important, and、uh, internationally, China is kind of as arising and emer-、uh, emerging, and also asserting itself as a global power. So we see the rhetoric of wolf warrior foreign policy, and that, of course, is from the two、uh, hugely popular movies, Wolf Warrior One, <laughs> Wolf Warrior Two. And that's the kind of ideal form of masculinity, of course. But that just not—it's not just about being very masculine, being very kind of muscly、uh, men. That's also about being、uh, someone who can conquer the foreign. Just someone who can conquer that image is needed for China's new international image, and that. Kind of also ties in with the in,、uh, domestic policies and politics as well. But it seems, I mean, the rhetoric seems so extraordinary. You know, we hear this CPPCC member Su Zifu, who's been warning that the feminization of Chinese men will inevitably endanger the survival and development of the Chinese nation. I mean, why are they using such over-the-top language? Can Can I? But in here,、um, what、uh, Agu Ting says about parental government and what you, you what you say about、uh, Suzhou Fu is quite interesting because I think if we take it away from the global level and and back to the parental or the, the family level, some people like Suzhou Fu obviously wanted wants to have more control, but he's、um, he's a very much a long voice I think because after he he、um, suggested that, that we should be. Make 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 boys more more masculine, and he goes around giving talks and so on. He's, he's basically sort of saying, what he's saying is, it's worried that boys are becoming too weak. Now that fits in with the so-called masculinity crisis. I think a lot, lot of people in government are, are are really genuinely worried that a lot of young Chinese are watching too much TV, playing too much computer games. You know, they're they're doing too much tangping, they're too much they're too much lying flat, doing you know, and 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 that's become a trend. And so they 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 actually genuinely worry about that. So the Suzhou, when 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 he came out, sort of saying we we have to make people more more masculine. The education ministry then a couple of days, a few days later, put out a memo, sort of saying, okay, right, teachers, I want you to to make boys more manly and less feminine. What happened was, hundreds of people started writing in social media. Attacking that now, this is directly against what you would say government, but I would say just poor Suzhou. People sort of just say, "You know, this guy's an idiot," and none of these people, as far as I know, got into trouble. And 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 I think every time when when something like that happens, some journalists will give them space, give them air, 
and what happens in social media, in blogs and so on, a lot of people complain and saying this is really bad. You know, it's um, what are you saying that we haven't got enough masculinity in China when, the, when as Graham said, there are 40 million more men in China. How much more masculinity do you want? You know, um, so it's, it's kind of like people really are, are quite sick of this whole idea as um uh, as Xiaogang has said before, every 10 years or so, there is th- some, some people would come out and sort of say, we want more men to be more manly. You know? And then other people would say, well, this is ridiculous. You know? So I think this, this will just you know, be in, in a few years' time, people will, will forget about it. Just to go a little bit high concept, Cam, I mean, it does remind me a little bit of this kind of nexus or this parallel between the body and the state that you sometimes get in Chinese history. This sort of worry that, you know, because Chinese men are physically weak, you, you have this sick man of Asia kind of concern coming as basically you put down the weakness of the nation to the weakness of individuals. I mean, is there echoes of history in that in some ways? Oh, definitely. I mean, Lu Xun Sulu says when foreign powers attack us, the Chinese men push the women forward. You know, I mean, that's how weak he thought Chinese men were over 100 years ago. And so, that, as I said, it's, it's nothing new. And before I sound like I'm against Chinese men, it's, it's not just the parental, it's not, it's not sort of paternal in, 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 in extremes. Parental meaning it's 20 odd years ago when, when I gave a talk about um, uh, cosplay and, um, and the influence of Japanese and Korean um, uh, notions of gender in, in China. At the end of the talk, I gave it in Australia. A woman came up to me and said, what you said about the boys is right. Because I was showing them how a lot of Chinese mothers were complaining about their boys turning too weak. They're so weak, they they don't study and they don't pass exams. So this mother, who is not a Chinese, she said, I'm worried about my kid too. My boy always watching TV. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost a universal problem, this idea of, of, of um, parents being worried about, about their kids. And in China in particular, it's extraordinarily important for boys to, or for everybody to pass the exams. And if you spend all your time studying, then you, you, know, you, you, you become nearsighted, which is what Sudo would complain about. You become weak physically. Um, and, and so a lot of parents are worried about that. And and, and some, some government officials sort of push that line because they know some parents are worried about it. Xiao Gang, I was going to ask you, I mean, in 2018, when there was a ban on gay content, Sino Weibo then went back and reversed that because of online protests. I mean, in this case, do you think that online discontent can have any, any kind of reaction? Actually, LGBT community doesn't have a lot of voice on it because sometimes we are kind of also being a little bit disappointed because in China, there's no any famous LGBT celebrities who's out. So, you know, we never had this connection. So, you know, like they never really supported us in a very kind of like openly way. If you really see who's out there, of course, we know there must have a lot LGBT and we like we knows who are they, but they never really speak up anything. So I think when the things happen, there's kind of like the quietness. Like, you know, I think the LGBT community doesn't really how to give the voice to them because, you know, there there's this kind of gap between like uh, we and them. I think on two, I think they start like a, a little bit targeting or like start getting a little bit like on like a transgender or like a, a drag queen community. I think that's the moment we realize, okay, this is not just about like a, the, the celebrity. And then I think the community start having a little bit like reaction on this situation. And also, of course, we also know as a organizations, 
especially NGOs now in China, we all very weak. You know, we kind of like, you know, that literally now before, I think 10 years ago, we can do a lot of things as a LGBT community. Sometimes we think, oh my God, everything is kind of like, you know, growing, it's amazing. But now literally a lot of LGBT community feel like they cannot do anything. They're always think about like change their, like uh, the complete change that their NGO to become some kind of like, you know, like business or, you know, find a business model to, to, to maintain this, uh, like the movement. So you can see like the pressure because uh, we have all this kind of like a, uh, different movements and the, the government's kind of putting down different movements. So before the LGBT was a far behind, but now same, somehow like feminist movement and LGBT, all like very frontline. So do you think this is code for a crackdown on LGBTQI movement? If you can't acknowledge its existence, you can't really crack down on it. But is this a way of doing that undercover? Yeah, I think, you know, they, they have their very kind of like a, smart way are doing it now because you know that they're, they're kind of building around all the, like a legal law to kind of like you, you cannot get money you have to re- legally register and you for a lot of people like like naturally like you because you cannot get money and you cannot register legally and what are you going to do then you're be, you will be the criminal so like a, i think this is like this is all all you know i think they did this is very in their very smart way so I think now it's a challenge for like a LGBT community, how to face this, like, you know, how we can break this. I think a lot of people are still trying to kind of get a legal recognition, you know, from the government to either, I think it's for a lot, uh, for a lot like a, like a gay group, they still can link a little bit like uh, with uh, HIV issues to register. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes for like, uh, the, 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 for the, the other, for the lesbian group or transgender group, it's hard because, you know, sometimes you're still are not, it's not just about providing service. You know, sometimes I think this is also kind of pressure, like they kind of like push you to only providing service. I think this, which is government one you do, which is easy because you provide service anyway, they also need service, but, uh, if you want to do anything advocating or like, uh, you know, like uh, try to get people like changing, like more on a law level or like, a, I think this is just getting harder and harder now in China. You know? And last year, uh, China also targeted LGBTQ organizations on campus, on university campuses as well. And uh, I was thinking that there, there is one, though, quite outspoken uh, transgender celebrity in China, but she, that's the, the pronoun she uses, she actually is pro the, the ideal masculinity. And she even goes on the dating shows to kind of discipline uh, women and discipline men as well, according to that very binary kind of gender norm. Yeah, it's, even it's kind of even she way. is so like yeah. supporting the like this kind of like traditional like genders, but she still got banned yeah. by the because you know yeah. I think the government even cannot think you know, because she has a background like used to be a man. I think this is a still you know even she's a so like you know say I'm woman you know I'm I was just born in the wrong gender, even like this, and the government still not really giving her all the green light, and sometimes you know still ban her show and you know like see you know still see her as a what she doesn't want being seen as a transgender, actually. 
just to clarify for the listeners, we're talking about Jinxing. And I would make the point that not only is she a sort of a, a comfortable transition, she comes from a very privileged background. She was born into an army family. So she was kind of the first transgender celebrity in China. Um, so, I mean, is that an issue as well in, in that we, when we talk about these issues, when we talk about the repression of LGBT groups, um, often uh, it's people with power that, that are kind of immune or are able to step forward, whereas those more marginalised groups, the poorer groups in society, are, are the ones who in some ways are most vulnerable to a campaign like this. When you say she's oppressed, how, 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 by how much is, is, is she suppressed? I mean, is she in jail or anything? No, she's not in jail. I think no, she just, of she's course, she's jail. still having her glamorous life. It just, uh, some of her show just like being cancelled, I think. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think, but it's still yeah, because there's because only one there. So, you know, people are desperately yeah. want to hold on her, says even anything she says, yeah. at least, you know, there's like a, a transgender, you know, she will never say She's a transgender, but, you know, everybody, like, you know, as a young LGBT people will see, see her as a transgender. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was, I was wondering about that because, as you probably know, one of the most popular boy bands in, in, in China is called A-Crush. The boy band of five girls who, who, who dress up as boys. And they've been going for, for, for a while, for several years. And, and, and you know, my, my feeling is that the Chinese government don't like think people who are different and they'll try and do something. But the thing the Chinese people always find a ways of, of doing things. And the best thing is that they live and let live type thing. But I mean, I mean, the question I have, and Ting, maybe it's a question for you. I mean, male dominance and male is still so powerful in China today. When we look at the political bodies, it's row after row of identical men. They all look the same. They're all wearing their black suits, red ties, dyed black hair. It doesn't really seem like male power or social hierarchies are that threatened in China right now. So why is this coming right now? This, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, but I think also historically as well, the central government historically, even going back to kind of imperial times, they have always been worried about something that has the potential to be dissenting or have the potential to be different. The current kind of fear or paranoia we see that also is related to the concern for the population growth that we and we have witnessed that for quite a few years now kind of the discourse of leftover women or I think leftover women I think that is just also targeting women but also that's kind of from a fear about not having enough kind of quality population in China. So that's that, that's part of the paranoia uh, that we, we're witnessing today. Yeah, but I do think um, there's a lot of people think about like, because our population are like dropping. So this is also kind of yes, why yeah. people think like, a, yeah, yeah. people think like the CC man cannot have a kiss or gay people cannot have a kiss or, you know, but yeah. um, which is all yeah, just yeah. wrong. Because <laughs> historically, men tend to be seen as the ideal or has proper citizenship, represent the nation, women do not. Only men can represent the nation, can represent the notion of citizenship. That's also why there's maybe stronger standard for masculinity historically and today. I think that's, that probably answers um, the point that Xiao Gang pointed out before, which is a really good one. Why is it that um, they tend to suppress men who dress up as women and not women who dress up as men. And that goes back to the whole idea of parental governance. And Louisa also pointed out that if you look at 
every time the important people in China have, have, have photographs, it's a row of dyed black hair, you know, and um, black hair meaning the, the men, it's all, it's the men who, who are in power. And what parents can't understand is why their boys want to dress up as girls. You know, don't you want to be powerful? That's probably why throughout Chinese history, it's, it's more difficult for men to dress up as women. Easier for women to pretend to be men, you know, because you, you are actually climbing one class up or one gender up. The whole thing about that, that people now are really scared of, or the people in power are scared of, is that the Chinese aren't having kids, aren't doing their jobs properly, aren't sitting for the exams. They just, just want to opt out, you know. Um, the, the, the bigness sort of generation is hit China. And that, that worries people, you know. Uh, and, and I think... Um, no, that's, I think that's a really good point, Shagana, to point out why, why, why people don't want to dress up or why men don't want to dress up as women. Now you say it, there are also very few role models of powerful women in China. Every single one that there has been has always ended up being painted as evil, right? Yeah, uh, I think when uh, Peng Mama, when she first appeared as the, the first lady of China, that she became kind of the ideal, but she, only as a wife, as a kind of supportive figure. You're talking about Xi Jinping's wife, Peng Liyuan, the singer, right? Yeah, yeah. Also, the discussion we, we were having just now also reminds me the recent, most recent cases of women being locked in cages or, or chained. But the some, or of course, we see huge internet reaction to that. Uh, but we also see some of the excuses people are making for these men who chain up women is that but they can't have kids, they need to have kids. You know, that's the only way they can have kids. We, ha- we have all these single men. What are they going to do about the offspring issue and that sexual desire? They need to have sex, need to have kids. <laughs> and I mean, Cam, do you think there's some kind of geopolitical masculinity race going on where Xi Jinping looks at Vladimir Putin with his, you know, bare-chested horseback riding and he's like, oh my God, we've got to step it up here too. It's possible, but I, I, I think sort of Xi Jinping probably doesn't take much time thinking about masculinity. Um, he's, he's he's probably more worried about, as you say, the, the geopolitical race in in, in other ways. Uh, how how to how to sort of um, negotiate between Russia and, and America and Australia. <laughs> you know, um, you know that those are sort of stuff things that I hope that he's more concerned about and not sort of I mean the the the, the fear of of Chinese men losing their masculinity really is something that only some people are really worried and and, and I think um um worried about and and it's 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 hopefully not Xi Jinping. I mean it's, it's <laughs> he has in the past he used this very curious phrase when he was talking about the fall of the Soviet Union. And he, he said that no one was man enough to stand up for the Communist Party there. It was a very, very interesting choice of words. I mean, that that, that does speak to a certain macho mentality, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm not suggesting that he's not macho. I, I think that you know, all, the, all these guys are, you know, they're, they're, they're macho. And, and that's, um, and, but being macho doesn't mean you think about, well, what is it? What, what, what would be a, a good man? You know, I don't think they, they think about about the kind of issues that uh, we talk about, you know. They um, think they maybe, are the good, maybe, good men ideal. They, they are the ideal good men. They're already ideal, yeah. <laughs> but also you can see if you compare like China and, uh, and Russia, I think they have a similar problem. Like the, the govern, government, like the people who's in like a top, 
they have this big gap with like a society because you know like young people are involved with like modern culture but the garment they're like very similar they're kind of like all a bunch of old men just don't really know the the other world are changing getting diverse getting like as you know maybe dress like women men i think but uh, the problem like everything they have to make a decision but the life is already changed. So I think that's kind of like, you know, I think that's like really like uh, the things are going on, I think in in China, in like, uh, in, in all country who's like, you know, dominated by the old, like, you know, this powerful man. Yeah, you really hit that nail on, on, on the head there. I mean, whatever expression it is, that's totally right. You know, there is a gap and that's where I, I'm very optimistic about what's going to happen next. Because, I, like I said, right throughout, I don't think the people on top really know what's going on below. So one, one of them say something and then, you know, when, when they can, you, you look, look, look at social media, everybody sort of say, what a, what a bunch of idiots, you know, what are they talking about? And that, I think that, um, um, that shows that the, the younger generation are not going to take, take too much of the parental sort of governance, as it were. Because, you know, most of them, or many of them, are, are one-child family kids. They've been spoiled. They, 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 they know that they're worth, you know, they're worth more than their parents. Um, and and they, they're not going to take sort of um, people bossing them around. We, we see that all the time. And, and, and um, so I'm, I'm not too worried about the so-called sort of uh, suppression that's coming, com- coming, coming down, you know. One interesting example is, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, you know, the broadcasting bureau told people not to have um, a man dressed up to to Liang Pao kind of way, way, you know, to Lady Cannon kind of kind of way, and came down with all these um, not not regulations but suggestions for for television to follow. As you probably know, right? What happened was that a couple of months later, um, that guy Zhou Peng, um, he committed suicide and left behind a suicide note. This twenty-five-year-old saying, "Look, I see no future." Because uh, I, was, I was bullied when I was at school because people said that I look too girlish uh, and, and I look too pretty and, I, and I, don't, I can't help it if I like dressing up and so on. It creates a huge furor, you know, that, that, that suicide note. Now, now, that completely negates what the Broadcasting Bureau sort of put out a couple of months ago. Now, all the social media is about this poor Joe Pang who, who killed himself. These things come and go, but on the whole, I think younger people will, will push forward, and even LGBTQ plus would 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 get more recognition and 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 more more unity. I think in the future. I agree with you. Say young people are you know definitely are changing, but also I'm also worried about because you know the whole like a uh, controlling on the LGBT. So sometimes you feel, you know because sometimes is individual. Uh, sometimes can very easily feel like hopeless. Definitely. There, there, there are a lot of social pressures where, where there, there will be individual tragedies. What I'm, I'm talking about, the general trend of, of this generation, this generation of young people, they're quite different to the old, older ones. They're not used to buckling down and doing what the party tells them. You know? um, and, and I think whatever the party comes out with, something will happen. Also, don't forget, you're now in Taiwan. You know, and Taiwan is a Chinese society, and it's and, and it's LGBTQI plus kind of policies and and and, and behavior is very very forward, and very forward looking, and the Rainbow Alliance in Australia, New Zealand is also quite 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 popular, and and we also do a lot of work, Chinese Chinese Rainbow Alliance. So there's there's huge Chinese people just just outside of of um, of China, who are doing lots of work with within Chinese communities. Um, and that will, 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 will flow back to China for sure because of the way that uh, information flows these days. 
Now, Gorton, can I maybe throw, throw a question to you um, on, on that? Because I'm really glad you brought up the Taiwan comparison, because if you look over history at uh, sort of attitudes towards gender in Taiwan and China, if you go back to, say, 1995, when there was a Women's Congress in Beijing, there were really similar attitudes. When you look at the World's Values Survey, um, attitudes to political leadership, can women be political leaders? China and Taiwan matched up almost perfectly, whereas now there's this huge gap. So although, although we say obviously the old men won't get their way, in a sense, if you look at surveys like the World Values Survey, they have gotten their way because the attitudes towards women remained frozen in 1995, whereas in Taiwan they've moved on. I mean, Guo Ting, how do you, how do you see that? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I think Taiwan is also a good comparison to the PRC. Uh, there's, I think we are seeing uh, system, kind of difference uh, in terms of system rather than difference uh, or the issue lies in the system rather than lies in so-called culture, whether we see it as, as Chinese or Sinophone culture. Uh, that that really makes a huge difference. And overall, I think, although Taiwan is very forward institutionally uh, among the young people in particular, but also if we look at the uh, older generation, they tend to be conservative as well. But we do see the generation difference, which uh, is true in the case of China as well. But the difference is, uh, that's another gap I think uh, we see in uh, today's China, the gap between uh, not just between the old people and the kind of top leadership, but also between activism and institutions. That it's a difficulty. We don't lack activism in China, but the activists uh, find it difficult to influence policy making, influence decision making, to influence the system, to influence institution. Uh, well, in Taiwan, it is possible to make changes institutionally, uh, despite how maybe the mainstream still or how the other generation think. I think that's the major difference we are seeing the, yeah, between the system and between uh, how, the, how one system can influence institution changes. It's going to hurt my left-wing friends for me to say this, but I see in some ways like the thing this, this campaign might be killed by is the market. Because if you look at China and you look at um, how an ideal man is portrayed in advertising there, it's not the macho guy. It's the nerdy, slightly effeminate guy with the glasses who can obviously provide for his family. And it's the number one market in the world for men's skincare products. Like you can't just suddenly make people give up their skincare regime. You know, like the market has already caused this to happen. And you, how do, you, you can't turn that around, can you? Yeah, yeah you're right. I think, Graham, the, um, China is now too capitalist to turn things around too easily. I mean, the, the capitalists are in charge, marketing, selling things and so on. Not only is there just skincare products and cosmetics that men, men are really into, but sort of um, uh, boy band thing, you know, the whole music industry. It's, 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 it, it, you look at all the singers and, and the young singers, they're all very feminine looking. And, um, and, and, and that's really being pushed by the marketing people. How, how anyone can push it back, it's just almost impossible. So maybe a final question for all of you. How then do we read this campaign? Is there any lasting significance to it? Or, you know, should we be alarmed by the fact that it does appear to be quite anachronistic, really harking back to really traditional gender roles that maybe we see as having no place in the China of today, but China's leaders seem quite interested in trying to imprint on the population. How, how, how worried should that make us? Well, I mean, I've been saying all along, I'm not too worried, just a little bit, um, 
because I think ultimately parents would want their kids to pass exams. That, by definition, will make them feminine, meaning they're not going to be out there gunning people down and killing horses and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, so ultimately, that, that, that will win over, as well as the, the popular culture, as well, in the, where, where, uh, where we, we said, you know, the feminine-looking men are, are the people that, that young girls go for. Despite the fact that China is still a fairly paternalistic kind of society, I think the idea of parent government is a good one. I think a lot of it is, is the mother's. You know, the mothers are worried about their boys not getting enough exercise, worried about their boys being giant, you know, being, being, being shut, shut, shut in boys who are not, not doing anything. Um, and, and it's, I mean, I'm worried too if I had, had, had a boy who just watches TV and play, plays computer games all day, all night long and not, not refuse to leave the room. That's the kind of worry and, and that fits in to, with, with people who uses that to push for, for masculinity or macho man. And, and I think um, it's a passing phase. I mean, that's, that's certainly, I, 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 I hope that that's the case. Ken, I'm really worried that now they're going to put killing horses and push-ups onto the Gaokao. What are your thoughts? Um, I think because China is a, a really diverse country, its opinion varies from uh, not just uh, province to province, but even neighborhood to neighborhood, household to household. <laughs> So I think there's there definitely will be people who will be very supportive of this top-down view, uh, but there will also be pushbacks. There will also be activism as well. Uh, but the question remains: how much of that will be able to influence the decision making, the policy making institutionally in China? Yeah. And finally, Xiao Gang. I'm really agree with uh, what they said. Uh, I'm only worried because this uh, the. Sometimes this policy seems like a, a not big deal, but I just feel like, especially in this time, they will kind of restrain more like space for the for the the gender uh, NGO, LGBT NGO to really work on the ground. So I think that's kind of things you know, because sometimes you know this kind of policy can really affect. Maybe they don't affect on like a you know like a personal a lot, but I think sometimes they can really have a big imp- uh, impact on like a. LGBT and gender groups. So that's kind of like, a, I will say, pay attention and we have to like make sure like, you know, there's still have a more space and there's a discussion and the, the push on like the LGBT and the gender groups and like NGOs. Thank you all so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Cam Louie, Guo Ting, and Wei Xiaogang. Also thanks to my co-host, Louisa Lin. Our editing is by Andy Hazel. Our background research is by Wing Kuang. Theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.